and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Um, the pieces of the Biden administration are slowly starting to fall into place. And as they do, it gives us a better picture, more insight into what the contours of the next administration's policies will look like on a range of issues, thinking about China, climate change, and the role of allies in American foreign policy. Uh, one issue that will be important to Brussels Sprouts listeners, uh, and that plays a really critical role in transatlantic relations, is Russia uh, and how the next administration might approach the Kremlin. Um, it's pretty clear there's not going to be any reset or real substantive improvement in the tone of relations um, with Moscow. But I think even within the confines of a tense and even an adversarial relationship, there's still room for slight differences differences in the tones of the approach. Uh, and today we are joined by the co-authors or co-drafters, one on each side of what is now referred to as the dueling Russia letters uh, that laid out different approaches, different perspectives uh, for dealing with the Kremlin. And so I'm very happy to welcome today Rose Gottmaler and David Kramer for the first time. Uh, Rose, of course, has joined us before. But welcome to both of you. It's it's fantastic to have you both here. Thanks and, very much. Thank and David, you. good to be here. And David, you do know you get a mug from all of this. Rose has hers on her desk. I'm sure she could show it to us right now. Is it going to be a virtual <laughs> mug or do I get a real one? We're going to put one in the mail. Excellent, excellent. I wanna do very quick bios for listeners that may not be familiar with our guests. Uh, first, we have Rose Gottmaler, who was the Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016 to 2019. She previously served in the US State Department as Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and as Chief Negotiator of the New START Treaty. She's now a Payne Distinguished Lecturer and Hoover Institution Fellow at Stanford University. And David Kramer is a senior fellow at Florida International University's School of International and Public Affairs. He formerly served as president of Freedom House for four years uh, and eight years in the State Department, including as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. So again, welcome to both of you. And I think where I wanted to start uh, is talking about your letters. Uh, there is really, reading them, there's significant overlap um, and common ground between both letters. And so I would love maybe just to hear from both of you, if you want to just lay out kind of very broadly the arguments that you each made in your letter, and to, to hear from you where you think there is the overlap, um, and how would you emphasize what are the real differences in the, in the approaches that you have advocated in the letters? And maybe, Rose, we can start with you. All right, very good, Andrea, and it's great to be on with you and Jim again, and of course with my longtime friend and colleague, David Kramer. I've been thinking about this a lot, and David and I have had a chance to talk about this before, but I think, frankly, I would say two things. Uh, first of all, in our letter, uh, we were looking for ways to uh, be a bit more um, carrot and stick in our approach to Russia to take uh, the opportunity uh, to use diplomacy to the hilt, to have a very sophisticated approach to Russia and uh, to look for ways to both impose greater costs, and I do want to stress that, impose greater costs when Russia is misbehaving, 
as it does egregiously on a regular basis, and also when uh, we can work with Russia to our mutual advantage, looking for ways to maybe back off on some of the sanctions activity. But I want to say that Russia would have to perform. They would have to deserve to be released from sanctions. And so the second thing I want to stress is that we do not propose a reset. We were done, I think, a disservice by the political editors when they labeled uh, David's letter as, no, there should be no reset because our letter did not propose a reset. And so that, that was our uh, very firm view from the outset, a more sophisticated uh, and holistic approach to diplomacy, looking for ways to employ carrots and sticks in a clever way, but by no means giving Russia a pass, particularly when they are engaging in egregious behavior. So David, I know there's a lot there that you would agree with. Um, so kind of how would you articulate what that common ground is with the two approaches and where do, where do you see um, what you all laid out as, as different from what Rose describes? Sure. Well, first, uh, thanks very much, Andrew and Jim, for this. And let me return the favor. It's, it's great to be with Rose on this, someone I've admired and respected for many, many years. Um, I think Rose is right that at the end of the day, when you scratch both letters, there is more than meets the eye than might appear to be the case initially. Um, I think maybe the way Rose put it is a good way to find some differences where we would probably offer fewer carrots out of the fear that Putin would consume them and then spit them back at us, if you will, to abuse that metaphor a bit. Um, and I think we're more inclined to use some sticks, in part because we simply feel that uh, th there really aren't many chances to work together with the current regime in Moscow and as long as it's there. And uh, we, we feel that a, a tougher approach uh, the, by we, I mean the people who signed along my letter, uh, believe in a tougher approach that would actually include a ratcheting up of sanctions rather than proposing a way toward easing sanctions in the belief that unless and until Putin feels more pain, he won't change his behavior and actions. And, and so I think that um, we, we aren't arguing for a cut in diplomatic ties. We're not suggesting we should never talk to uh, Russian officials. Um, I think we're both in agreement that particularly when it comes to arms control, there is no substitute for sitting down and talking. And hopefully, uh, if not in the end of the Trump administration, in the very early days of the Biden administration, we'll see a renewal of the new START agreement, which is crucially important for both sides. Um, so we're, we're willing to find a few areas. We, we just think that there isn't much fertile ground there to plow in finding areas of common interest between our two sides as long as Putin is in, is in power. Maybe one quick follow-up on the sanctions front. Do you, I mean, that position seems to hold the assumption that sanctions can change behavior in the Kremlin. Um, is that something that you agree with? Do you think that it is just a, fa a fact of, um, a factor of us not imposing tough enough sanctions, and if we had only done that, that the Chet, that the Kremlin would have changed its calculus. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe start first. I, I, I do think that the imposition of sanctions early in 2014 did keep the Kremlin from going further into Ukrainian territory um, because they also didn't know when the sanctions were going to end, and I think those sanctions did have some bite. And we have seen Russian officials and their agents spend a lot of time trying to get sanctions lifted, both Ukraine-related sanctions, election interference-related sanctions, 
and Magnitsky-related sanctions. They have spent a great deal of diplomatic effort in trying to get these sanctions lifted. And I would say if they weren't having some impact, then they wouldn't spend this political capital uh, trying to get them lifted. The, 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 the key point I would make is that the target of sanctions has to know that he or she is going to get hit with more sanctions unless he or she changes his or her behavior. And so we have to keep ramping up sanctions until that point of pain reaches such a point that, that the actions and behavior change. And I think that's what we need to do rather than talking about easing sanctions, making it clear what needs to be done, but, but not talking about easing right now in light of what's happening. And the converse would also be true, though, that they have to see the clear um off ramps that if they if there are behaviors that change that they have to understand that sanctions would be eased right that would be the flip side of that but yes Jim, I, I mean yes yes sorry, I'm sorry go ahead yeah oh, I, I know Jim had a question that he wants to get in here well before Jim speaks let me just jump in on your point Andrea I think that's the key difference between our two letters that on our side we say absolutely we stick with sanctions and we ramp up sanctions as necessary but also prevent present the view of the clear off ramps where do they have to perform in order to get sanctions relief? Because now I think in Moscow, they often shrug their shoulders and say, why should we change our behavior? These sanctions are never going to be forgiven anyway. So let's continue being the bad boys. You know, it's, it's fascinating um, the impact that these letters had and how they were, um, you know, really misperceived in a lot of ways. And I think part of the question uh, or part of the issue is this. So I, I got a number of phone calls when, <laughs> when those letters came out. I'm not sure why they were calling me, but it was the, the, a lot of the Baltic nations and Central East Europeans. And I think what, what um, in their context, these letters were dropped in their laps as they were a little bit nervous about the Biden, a, a forthcoming Biden administration. This was what, about a month ago or so. Uh, and they were... Um, you know, they were in their minds. I don't, and I don't, I don't want to speak to them as if they're a, a homogeneous whole, but, uh, but on the whole, they are, they were uh, concerned about folks that might come in with Biden, that they're the same people who did the reset, that they're going to be soft on Russia. Uh, Biden is soft on Russia. This is bad for us. Uh, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Jim, could you talk to us about this? What is Biden's plan on Russia? What's his perception about Russia? And then the letters hit them. And they, they were running around with these letters going, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is so, um, you know, I and I so I, to answer that also with a someone from one of the newspapers called and said, so how would you describe uh, Biden's Russia policy? And I said, well, look, it's, it's not the reset because these guys were burned by the reset. You know, this is this is a very sober minded group, number one. So it's not the reset, but it's not the Cold War either. I said it's 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 something that's going to be in the middle somewhere. It's going to be Biden's. It's not going to be the Obama one, and it's not going to be. It's going to be Biden's own policy towards Russia. So my question for you is, what's that policy? <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to stitch it together, but it's been difficult. What would you say uh, is the Biden's policy on Russia as we as we might feel what it is today? Well, maybe I'll start, not because I have any particular inside information on this, but uh, first of all, Jim, I'm laughing because I was just in advance of this podcast reviewing the, the Kremlin press today, and apparently the reason Putin is sitting on recognizing the Biden presidency is because the, the Kremlin's trying to parse just how hardline this guy's going to be and not very happy about Biden coming in compared to Trump. And, oh, my God, Tony Blinken's going to be secretary of state and he's really hard over on sanctions. So 
obviously there's a different perception coming from Russia and the Baltic states on what kind of policy a Biden administration will have. So, uh, so that's a very interesting point. But you know, I, I work very, very long and hard and well with the with the NATO members who are from the Baltic states and the central and eastern parts uh, of NATO, and I truly understand uh, their their great anxiety with regard to Russia. Anyone yeah. who is in that neighborhood has enormous anxiety. So I, I truly understand it, but. As far as uh, the incoming Biden team is concerned, I have been heartened that again and again and again, top of their list has been working strongly with allies, working strongly with NATO on deterrence and defense, enhancing uh, defense capabilities, but then also figuring out, uh, you know, the kind of second uh, part of the dual track, as we call it, deterrence and defense, but also detente. Right. So I think that you will see that kind of balanced approach, uh, I would say, out of a Biden administration. But first and foremost, the commit will, commitment will be to uh, re-emphasizing uh, re and strengthening the links to the NATO allies. I, I think Rose is, is, is right on this. And, you know, I think back, Jim, to uh, a letter, open letter that was issued in the summer of 2009 after the Obama administration was already in office when a number of East Central European leaders and, yeah. and leading analysts expressed concern about the reset, concern that uh, countries along Russia's borders were gonna be sold out, that missile defense would be reversed, and that the human rights problems in Russia would be uh, swept under the rug. And I think they are trying to preempt um, any move in that direction, though I agree with Rose, I don't think they're going to see that from a Biden administration. This is, this is a president, after all, who I don't think will hold grudges. But the Russians try to uh, basically uh, uh, blackball him and his son by spreading uh, utter disinformation and lies um, to the credit of the uh, current administration, the Treasury Department and State Department sanctioned two individuals who may be accused of being Russian agents. They're actually Ukrainians, but Russian agents trying to spread this these absurd stories about Hunter Biden and, and President-elect Biden. So I don't think President Biden is going to necessarily give them the benefit of the doubt, but I think he's also uh, smart enough and, and has experience enough to know that um, holding grudges is not the way to pursue foreign policy. But I think he, he is gonna be very supportive of Ukraine, having spent a lot of time on that issue as vice president. He'll be supportive of the other countries along Russia's borders. Let's remember neither President Obama nor President Trump visited any of the countries along Russia's borders um, and put aside the Baltic states um, during their administrations. And I think we're likely to see President Biden and possibly Vice President Harris, as well as Secretary Blinken, uh, pay a lot more attention to these countries because I think that is a way also to deal with the Russia problem by helping to strengthen the countries along Russia's borders. I think that that's that's right. And, and a couple things. One is, uh, you know, Biden went to Latvia, I think, towards the end of his uh, in, in the second Obama administration. I know Azita Raji, who was our ambassador in Sweden, had him also go to Sweden for the same reasons, because Sweden was under pressure as well from the Russians still are. So you're right. I think I think he has shown in the past that he um, he knows what they're they're dealing with. But you also raised that the famous letter that came in in 2009. I totally forgot about that. Uh, when they came in, it really threw me for a loop because it was like, you know, what, why, why do you guys feel you need to write this letter? It was a bit of a, a downer. I mean, we, we had this, we felt really good. We were coming in and 
and we to be saddled with this letter was a, quite a disappointment. But I think it reminds us that whether it was there in 2009 or maybe in the next month or two with the new Biden administration, we do need to go in uh, and Rose, like you were saying, whether it's at NATO or whether it's bilaterally, we do need to go in and show early on the Central and East Europeans and the Nordics too, that uh, that we're, you know, this is not a time of reset. Don't worry about that. This is this is gonna be to reassure you and uh, to, to make sure you understand that we feel as you do, that you're in a special place that we're gonna be paying attention to. That's exactly right, Jim. There's going to be a big emphasis on restoring the transatlantic bond, restoring confidence in the transatlantic relationship. And I think that will be a priority for the new administration. I wanna ask about the, the election itself and whether or not you were surprised by um, the extent of Russian interference relative to 2016, meaning that there was, a, I think a lot less happened than many of us uh, certainly feared would happen. I mean, David, you highlighted the Der Koch piece of this and we know that there were certainly things that the Russians did both in terms of open source information operations, trying to denigrate Vice President Biden. There were efforts uh, to, infiltrate some within the political establishment going after campaigns and think tanks. Microsoft exposed the fact that Russia had gone over after something like 200 different organizations. And we know there were some cyber intrusions into local government networks, although it looked like they were kind of scanning and, and, and never actually um, you know, use that position to do anything in any way to shape the election. But I, but it, I, I do think Relative to 2016, the Russians did less in this election, and I wonder kind of why you think that is. I mean, certainly there was, you, one could argue that there was so much happening domestically, that there was so much kind of undermining of, domestic, of the election and uh, so much disinformation that was coming from domestic actors that Russia didn't have to do it. Um, but I wonder if that's, you know, if that's what you think it is or if there's more to the story than that. I think that's part of it, Andrea, but I think, um, you know, we're all former government officials and I think reading between the lines of uh, the NSA leadership and other agencies in the U.S. government, it sounds like we were much more aggressive and much more on guard. I think we, it sounds like we took some uh, preemptive actions against Russian actors uh, to try to uh, uh, offset their, their impact. I don't think it's for lack of intent or trying on the part of the Russians, but I think um, the, the actual results are less than what we saw in 2016. Um, I, I do think that the chaotic situation was already playing into Putin's hands. And so perhaps he felt we didn't, they didn't need to be as aggressive as they were in the past. But let me point out one other aspect of this that I think has not gotten enough attention. And I find it incredibly disturbing. And that is these uh, ransomware attacks that originate in Russia against American hospitals and American medical institutions as we're dealing with a pandemic. That is, that could be shut down if Putin wanted to. He clearly has no interest in shutting it down. And that is a sign of, of, uh, of a regime that is not our friend to say the least. So while they may not have been as aggressive in the election, they have continued to be aggressive in other cyber areas. And that one is particularly worrying to me. Rose, kind of a piggyback question on that. You can certainly address part of that question too, but you also kind of highlighted or hit on the fact that still, I mean, Putin has yet to congratulate President-elect Biden. You highlighted that it, you know, maybe that they're trying to parse out what this administration might mean. Blinken, for example, is a fan of sanctions. But you also hear in the Russian media too that some in the Kremlin 
um, might be that it's not all negative, uh, the, the change of administration, that Trump didn't, wasn't actually to, able to deliver all that Russia had hoped, um, and that they may be um, somewhat relieved to have someone home in the White House, that there will be someone, a direct interlocutor, where they can work on issues that are important to them, like arms control, that there'll be someone on the other end of the line if they want to pick up the phone. And I wonder kind of how much truth you think it is to that, or is this change of administration really a net negative for Russia for in, in, their, in their understanding of it? I think that's really an astute question, Andrea, and it really is reflected in the in the Russian press that I was reading this morning, uh, again, in advance of this podcast. There is the concern, uh, just as you laid out, people, uh, you know, close to the Kremlin saying what a hardliner both uh, Biden and Blinken have been on Russia, their, their continued devotion to the sanctions instrument, etc., but on the other hand, there's been a number of, uh, of commentators also saying, look, Blinken is incredibly close to Biden. We'll finally have somebody who can get to the president whenever he needs to get to him. Maybe we'll have, in that way, a more effective U.S.-Russia policy uh, because they can work it closely between the State Department and, and the White House. So definitely those two strains are there, and we will see how uh, how it advances in, in upcoming days. We ought to take a bet among the four of us of when Putin is finally going to acknowledge the election. I don't know myself, but uh, it's really uh, pretty funny given the fact that Xi Jinping, it was, uh, you know, two weeks ago, he decided to go out and say congratulations. So it's a weird situation. But I, I think that that does reflect the debate and discussion in, in Moscow. Can I just add to that real quick? Because uh, um, I think Rose is, is absolutely right. And I think on the one hand, the Kremlin has loved the unpredictability and chaos that have characterized the Trump administration over the past four years. But I think they have also been frustrated by it because it has not produced the results that they were hoping for, in particular, the lifting of sanctions. I think with a Biden administration, we will see much more predictability and we won't see these whimsical tweets that change policy because he wakes up one one morning and hears something on on uh, Fox and Friends and changes his mind on policy. So I think I think um, that may be welcomed in the Kremlin. And, and I think, as Rose said, the, the Blinken Biden relationship, I think, will also be very important. And, and the Jake Sullivan uh, Biden relationship will be very important. And think of how many national security advisors Trump went through in his administration. And here he will have two people in charge of national security who are his right-hand people. Um, and I think that I think the Kremlin may actually appreciate some sense of normalcy and predictability, even though they have enjoyed watching the United States in such a polarized, uh, deeply political and divided state that it's been in. You know, um, you were, we were talking about the Chinese there just peripherally for a second. But, you know, that's kind of a new player for this, too. We've been talking about Russia, Russia, Russia here. Um, but, you know, you know, but now as Biden uh, comes online and his administration comes to the fore and we're thinking about what the Kremlin's trying to make of them, um, I'm wondering how, how I wonder how the Kremlin is thinking of this new Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis China. Because in a sense now, China's got a new administration coming up. China's got the Biden. They've got to figure out Biden as well. And those two capitals have to figure each other out. So will the Russians kind of make a play for the United States to try to loosen some of the grasp that China kind of has on Russia? 
uh, you know, filling a lot of Russian uh, needs and kind of making Russia a bit dependent on China for some things. So maybe this is an opportunity for um, for the Kremlin to kind of flip it on the Chinese by, you know, making more overtures to the U.S. Maybe with China, it's going to be different. Uh, and so um, it's that the triangulation of that relationship and how one plays one off against the other is going to be very interesting. I would imagine they must be thinking about that in Beijing and in the Kremlin right now, too, is, is what are we going to do with Biden? Uh, but also, what are we going to do about China and Biden? Do you think? Well, it's not only the trilateral uh, relationship. I think you're very right that uh, Moscow and Beijing are very wary of each other, but there are also other players in this mix now too. I'll just give you the example I saw this week that the Philippines is proposing to buy the BrahMos missile, which is a you know Russia-India uh, cruise missile, apparently very effective, depending on Russian technology, but with Indian manufacturing, and they're selling them to the Philippines to defend Philippine territory against the Chinese. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity. It's not just a three-party game by any means. And yes, I think you're absolutely right, Jim, that there's some, some uh, weighing of the circumstances going on in both Beijing and, uh, and in Moscow. I think uh, Beijing, having had a great uh, trade victory in recent weeks with this new trade agreement with other Asia-Pacific countries, uh, probably feels very much on the front foot with regard to Washington and uh, perhaps feels it has some advantage in going forward on trade and, uh, and uh, releasing the, the trading, um, uh, trading constraints it's been under with the United States. We'll see how that works out, but they may feel a bit more on the front foot than Moscow does at the moment. Right. Yeah, I, I think uh, just picking up on, on what Rose was saying, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes this administration made, the current administration, and it made many, um, was getting out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, because that was one of the best ways to deal with China, a great a trade agreement that didn't include China. And now, as Rose said, we have the opposite situation of a trade agreement in which we're not a member. I, I do think one of the biggest challenges both Beijing and Moscow will face is an administration and a president himself who cares about human rights. Um, Donald Trump has never missed an opportunity to give Putin a pass, engages in disgusting moral equivalence when asked about uh, human rights abuses in Russia. It seems, according to Bolton, uh, have given uh, President Xi the green light on dealing with the Uyghurs. Um, and I can't imagine any of that happening um, in a Biden administration where he has talked about a summit for democracies and placing human rights and democracy front and center in U.S. foreign policy, which in my view will be a huge welcome relief from what we've seen over the past four years. Yeah, I think that's right. And because of that perspective, then the Kremlin is can, can going to continue to see really little future with the West and with the United States in particular. And that's just a really powerful motivator of its relationship with Beijing, that they are going to be aligned, um, pushing back on this U.S. democracy promotion support for human rights. So I think, unfortunately, over the next four years, I wouldn't anticipate that there would be any change in that deepening relationship between Russia and China. Um, but I do, I, Rose, I also want to ask about uh, arms control. And both you and David talked about New START as most important out of the gates. It's got to be done. Uh, if it isn't extended uh, under the current administration, which it doesn't look like it will be, then that gives the Biden administration a very quick turnaround to get this done by the 5th of February. 
Are, do you have any concerns, Rose, about our ability both on the U.S. side and on Russia's side, because it'll have to run through the traps through their legislature, I believe. Um, any concerns about uh, both sides' ability to get it done ahead of the deadline? Well, first of all, technically, it's an easy thing to do. It was written into the treaty that uh, New START can be extended for five years according to its terms. And so a simple exchange of diplomatic notes is all that is required from a US perspective. It does not need to go back to the Senate and the Senate agreed with that when they gave advice and consent to the treaty back in 2010. So um, it's technically easy to do, but you're quite right, Andrea, the Russians have put forward uh, their necessity of taking it through some legislative procedure, which takes longer than two weeks. So I was concerned about that, but it is a good thing in recent uh, weeks, there was a Commerçant article about two weeks ago in which uh, the Russians made clear that they are now willing to put in place some kind of provisional application of New START for the period that would be required for them to uh, complete their legislative procedures. That was very welcome news indeed. And I do think that now we, it will be a bit more, more complicated, obviously. And that, uh, that provisional application will have to be written into the exchange of documents uh, to affect uh, the extension of the treaty. But again, this is something that can be done in a two week period. And I know from talking to, to people uh, on the Biden team that they have that very much uh, front and center Furthermore, they've been uh, public about it, uh, going through the list of what their top priorities will be out of the gate. New START extension has been on it. Do you have the sense that the Biden administration will push for the full five-year extension? Or you keep hearing every once in a while little mentions of, well, maybe we should just do the one-year extension uh, and then push you know, to either broaden the agreement or address the new weapon systems that it doesn't cover, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. How concerned are you that it might not be extended for the full five years? And what would be your view? I mean, is your preference that, it, that we got to get it done for the full five years because you need that amount of time to work on other issues? Well, my basic argument for extending it for the full five years is for uh, predictability during our nuclear modernization. We are on the cusp now of a modernization of our, of our nuclear triad. We need the maximum predictability over the next five years and stability in order to make sure that that modernization rolls out as smoothly as possible. So I argue for the full five years, it's not gonna be enough for our full modernization, but it does give five years of predictability right at the very beginning. And as a negotiator, you know, this one year argument to me is idiotic. You can't complete a treaty in a year. We found that out with New START. That is complete both the negotiation with the Russians and the ratification process. So, and the Russians are masters at flipping leverage. So if you think you're gonna lever them uh, with a one-year extension, think again, because they'll flip the leverage on you very quickly. You could see that at the end of this uh, exchange between the uh, Putin and Trump administration. I give the Trump team a lot of credit for pushing the Russians hard and fast on things like nuclear warhead freeze. I thought that was a really good step, but, uh, they couldn't get it across the finish line and the Russians flipped the leverage on them at the last minute. So I don't like to play that game at the negotiating table. It can come back and bite you. One more question on the arms control front. Do you think that there's any hope of anything following the INF treaty? So I feel like some, you hear, hear kind of also some conversations about what an INF 2.0 could look like. Maybe that there's an agreement that we don't deploy in Europe 
or alternatively that we're able somehow to bring China into the mix and that we could agree to a cap on um, on the type of, of these weapons in a, in a kind of multilateral with the three different countries. Do you see any hope for anything following um, INF, which, which is now obviously defunct? I think there are some really good ideas out there. You've, you've pointed to some of them. Some of them I'm not crazy about, but nevertheless, I think there is enough scope for talking not only to the Russians, but also to the Chinese about constraints on intermediate range ground launched missiles in Eurasia. And uh, again, the Trump administration, I give them credit for pushing this issue uh, with the Chinese that they need to start thinking about negotiated restraint on their own forces. Chinese haven't agreed to come to the table yet, but I think this is a discussion that we need to see continued under the new administration. And uh, I think that there are some opportunities for placing new constraints on intermediate range ground launched missiles. So we'll see where we go, but I do believe there are some good options out there and uh, let's see what can be accomplished. So let's leave the arms control arena just for a second, although uh, I love arms control, so we could have filled another hour. But um, I, I want you both to give some advice to, um, to President-elect Biden right now. So eventually he's going to get a phone call from the Kremlin, uh, and uh, Putin will begrudgingly uh, congratulate him and uh, mumble something or another. What would you advise Biden to say to Putin on the phone? Um, what would uh, what would be top of the pops for you all in terms of the points that you feel Biden should make make to Putin? I'm happy to start. I, I guess what I would suggest, Jim, is that he lay out what we believe the Kremlin needs to do if there is any hope to salvage anything of this relationship beyond um, extending or uh, the new arms the new start uh, treaty. Um, that includes getting out of Ukraine. It includes uh, uh, stopping interference in our elections and the elections of other countries. Um, and it includes human rights abuses. So those are the three areas on which we have sanctions apply. Um, and so and there are also areas where the Kremlin denies that they're responsible for any of that. They don't uh, agree that they are in Ukraine. Um, they, they claim they don't interfere in our elections. And of course, they reject the charge that they are committing human rights abuses. They won't even launch an investigation into the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Um, so we are really not even starting from the same page. I think it's clear that uh, President-elect or President Biden, depending on when the conversation takes place, lay out in, in very crystal clear terms um, what it is that we need to see happen for any chance of an improvement in relations. But then I think he also has to make clear that the countries along Russia's borders get to determine their own future. Um, I, think, I think that is a clear message that he needs to send and that the 2008 pledge at NATO in Bucharest uh, where Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO is something that we don't consider dead. Now, the, the Georgians are having their own problems right now. Ukraine is, is struggling as well, but that doesn't mean that we take that pledge off the table. And it's because those countries have their own sovereign right to determine where they want to go. And so I think reiterating those key points on, uh, uh, on, on human rights, on respect for neighbors, respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, um, are critical in, in the first phone call. I agree with those points that uh, David's laid out. I will also say, based on my own, uh, you know, 
focus uh, that this whole strategic stability conversation needs to be wider than just the extension of New START, that uh, they should begin to talk about uh, what other issues need to be addressed. Uh, I mentioned uh, the freeze on warheads being a good first step, moving beyond that to begin to uh, negotiate about limiting warheads in a verifiable way, and also talking about some of the other problems that are out there, like some of these new Russian systems, nuclear systems we've been very concerned about. And no doubt the Russians will bring their own concerns to the table about U.S. Uh, missile defense and other questions uh, so both sides should have that opportunity to engage in, in really intensive strategic stability talks. Further, I would say it's high time to look again at, uh, at the conventional side. Uh, Jim, I'm not proposing a return to the CFE treaty or conventional arms control in the old way, but I do think we need to consider what would be ways to, uh, to uh, enhance stability in Europe on the conventional front as well. And that includes looking at ways to be better prepared to respond to incidents and accidents and uh, better able uh, to prevent any kind of spirals up to a crisis or heaven forbid a conflict. So I think there's, there's a fruitful, uh, fruitful territory for dialogue, both on the nuclear side and the conventional side. I agree. Can I just add three other issues real quick? Two are warnings, and one is maybe an area of cooperation. Uh, the warnings are to knock it off in Syria, where Russian forces have been complicit in uh, possible war crimes in supporting the murderous Assad regime. Uh, the second is to knock it off when it comes to buzzing our aircraft and our ships and violating our, our, our uh, territory. Um, the possible area of cooperation, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it's one where we're going to see increasing competition is in the Arctic. Um, and I think trying to find some common rules of the road there, either through the Arctic Council or somewhere else, um, is going to be very important. No, that Arctic point, I agree completely. I was going to throw that in myself. Yeah, we need some confidence building measures. We need uh, incidents at sea kind of thing in the in the Arctic. I, I agree completely. Bringing you know, that's Arctic a good thought is one thing. I mean, because there, I mean, one thing that we haven't been discussing much is the, the militarization of the Arctic and the security issues and finding a way to bring that back into the discussions. And those are areas, again, where there is presumably some room for cooperation with the Russians. But go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Andrea, but uh, I do agree that uh, this is an area that needs attention. Uh, it needs attention on the NATO side as well, uh, how to operate in the Arctic uh, and it's a good thing, I think, that uh, the Arctic Council has proven over the years to be resilient, that the Russians continue to participate more or less in a productive way in the Arctic Council. And frankly, they've got the Chinese breathing down their necks in the Arctic, and they're looking for ways to, uh, to try to shut the Chinese out of the Northern Sea Route and so forth. So frankly, this is an area I know that, that there's going to be competition, including military competition in the Arctic, with NATO very much involved. But on the flip side, there's also potential for, for cooperation to ensure freedom of navigation and to ensure that, uh, well, let me put it this way, outsiders are not meddling too much. Yeah, well, well, we can uh, we'll do a little uh, self promotion, Jim, um, and note that Jim and I are working on something on Russia, China, in the Arctic, and so this does agree that this is an issue that's going to be really important to look at. Andrea, can I can I add one more issue? I apologize, Jim. Um, again, I'll to be real quick. Belarus is another issue that I think we need to raise with them um, because the Kremlin is on the verge of making a huge mistake there and turning 
a population that is not anti-Russian into an anti-Russian population by continuing to support Lukashenko. We don't have any interest in seeing Lukashenko stay there. I think at the end of the day, neither does the Kremlin, but they don't know what to do. And I think they're making a terrible mistake. And in the process, the, the poor people of Belarus who are courageously going out in the streets repeatedly are suffering terribly. And I think we have to figure out a way to resolve that issue while preserving Belarus's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Yeah, I think there's a lot, there is really a lot of interest that is happening along Russia's periphery. It's Belarus, it's Nagorno-Karabakh, it's the Moldovan elections, even in Kyrgyzstan and kind of has sparked, I think that it should inspire us all to do a little thinking about what that means for Russia's role in this, you know, what it has historically termed its privileged sphere of influence. Um, it's, it's always remarkable to me that analysts will diverge in their assessment. Some will argue that actually this is a sign that Russia has kind of uh, planted a flag and solidified its influence with the peacekeepers in um, Nagorno-Karabakh and that they've managed to keep the United States and uh, the European Union really out of negotiations there and in Belarus. Others argue, well, this is actually a sign that Russia's influence is waning dramatically in its traditional sphere. And so I think there's just so much going on. It really, I think, should prompt us to rethink how we engage uh, in those countries. So I think that that's food for thought for the future. Yeah, there is one other issue on Russia's periphery that is going to be front and center, and that is Afghanistan. Right. The Afghanistan peace uh, process, such as it is, is unfolding rapidly. Uh, the date when NATO, including the United States, but NATO uh, troops and the NATO partners in Afghanistan uh, are supposed to be out is May 1st. Uh, are, are we going to see another meltdown in Afghanistan or are we all going to join together in order to try to promulgate this peace process and ensure that Afghanistan does not, uh, does not uh, go up in smoke again? So I think Russia's going to be concerned about that from uh, the perspective of security on its southern borders, but also uh, it's going to be concerned about it uh, from the perspective of other things that could happen, such as enhanced uh, drug trade coming out of Afghanistan if the peace process fails. So they have an interest as well, and it's one we have to think through. How will they play in Afghanistan? Throw Libya into, their, into that pot too. I mean, they- Iran, the nuclear deal, what their yeah. role in that, any new negotiations will be. I feel like we're opening Pandora's box here and we could probably talk for the next two hours about all of these issues. But I am cognizant of time. I think we're getting close to, to wrapping up here, but- um, again, I think just to say a huge thank you to David and Rose, I, uh, this has been really a fantastic conversation. We really could have gone on and on for at least another hour, but um, just really appreciate all of your insights and the food for thought in this discussion. And I think you've given, given listeners some really um, important insights into what they should expect for the future of U.S.-Russia relations under the next administration. So thank, thanks again for, for joining us. Been a pleasure. Thanks. Rose and I should take this show on the road, except we can't travel, so. That's true. It would be my pleasure, David. But uh, I'm just thinking to myself, this first phone call between President Biden and President Putin is going to be a long one. And <laughs> Thank I know. you both. It'd be yeah. great to be a fly on the wall to listen to that one. That that would be one heck of a Brussels sprouts podcast. <laughs> That's right. And I bet there will be a note taker for that call, by the way. So. <laughs> and David, your cup's in the mail. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>